Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. It's a secret universe beneath ours. What are you so afraid of? There's something I never told you. This place. It isn't what you think. I can get you home. And give you more time. If you help me, so what's it gonna be, Batman? Excerpts from the movie Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, a story of a family, it appears a dysfunctional family, and well, Ant-Man is not one of the more well-known Marvel characters. I wonder if Pastor Ted Geese, where he would rank him. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll review the movie Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania with Pastor Ted Geese. We'll go through listener email on the Issues Etc. comment line. We will be debunking the pro-choice life of the mother argument with Dr. John Brukowski, founder of Tepiak OBGYN in Fairfax, Virginia. And then we'll discuss same-sex marriage, Obergefell, and children with Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morse of the Ruth Institute. Pastor Ted Gies has a bachelor's degree in fine arts. He's pastor of Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, and he teaches a course for Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary titled A Lutheran Approach to Art, Media, and Film. Ted, welcome back. Thanks. In the pantheon of... Marvel superheroes, where does Ant-Man rank with you? I mean, he's kind of enjoyable. The thing that you got to remember is there's like, I don't know, 31 of these movies or maybe more than that. I don't know. There's like lots. So there's lots of characters. He's not Thor. He's not Captain America. You know, he's not one of the big characters, right? So he's, he's sort of supposed to be more comic relief or at least that's kind of the way he's kind of turned out to be with Paul Rudd playing Ant-Man here. And that's all fine. I mean, like he's a guy that shrinks to the size of, well, smaller than an ant sometimes. But that's the idea is that he has this suit that makes him go really tiny or really big. And really like the first couple of these movies, the first one particularly, it's an ant-sized story for an ant-sized hero. Like, this isn't galaxy saving stuff. It was the first film ended with him having a fight against the villain in his daughter's bedroom, right? I think that Ant-Man works best and I would rank him higher if the Ant-Man story is kind of focused on Ant-Man sized problems. 
<laughs> you know, and then he can be a side character in the Avengers and all of the other stuff that goes on. He's probably been in about five or six of these movies. Paul Rudd is Ant-Man. But in his own standalone films, you know, this is the third of those films. So the first one was just Ant-Man. The second one was Ant-Man and the Wasp. This one is Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania. He's not my most favorite. He's not my least favorite. He's probably higher up in the middle of the pack to answer your question. So what do we need to know about the character itself if we're walking into this film? Well, okay, so I wouldn't recommend anybody walk into this film if they haven't seen the first two. I think that you would, A, not really know it. Like, they're really... they're expecting you to know something about the backstory when it comes to this because they're not really giving you a whole pile. They really are expecting you to know something about the second film as well. So the character of Ant-Man, Scott Lang is the guy. He's played by Paul Rudd, like I said. And he's basically a kind of a criminal, but like one of these, like a criminal with a heart of gold and he's been in jail and he's divorced and he's got a daughter and This was all kind of part of the first film, and he's not really Ant-Man. Michael Douglas is Ant-Man from the past, but he has the Ant-Man suit, so he becomes Ant-Man, as it were. And then in the second film, you get uh, the Wasp character, and that's Hope Van Dyne. She's in the first film, too, but the second film, Evangeline Lilly, this is the person who plays Hope Van Dyne. She also has one of these suits that makes you tiny and makes you big. I think hers just makes her tiny. I don't know that hers makes her big. At any rate, they end up, through the course of that second film, finding Hope's mother, who has been lost. So Hope is the actual daughter of the original Ant-Man, played by Michael Douglas, and Michelle Pfeiffer's character, uh, who is the uh, the original Wasp. It's just one of these things where you have like the old heroes and then the uh, next generation of heroes kind of a thing, and they kind of transpose from one time to the next time. So they get her back out of the quantum realm. This is where she was hidden away. And this is Janet Van Dyne, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. That's how the second film kind of wraps up of these. And now you're at the third film, and you're going to end up back in that quantum realm. So this is where through these films leading up to this film, it's kind of, there's always been a family dynamic kind of part of these films. It's a father and a mother with a daughter. And then the the guy who's playing Ant-Man now, he's got his own daughter. And now in this third film, the daughter is older and she has her own suit. Her name is Cassie Lang, played by this Catherine Newton uh, young lady. And now you've got another kind of iteration of this kind of family dynamic. So this is kind of part of it leading into it. And that's stuff that you need to know leading in, I guess, into this film. Also, I guess the other thing, and they they make it abundantly clear as the film gets rolling, is that Scott Lang as Ant-Man, he was uh, pivotal in all of the stuff that happened with uh, the Avengers Endgame and the Infinity Gauntlet-related stuff that he was part of saving the world when they had that whole blip thing in Thanos and the glove with the gems on it, etc. That's all part of what you would need to know coming into this film. What story does this particular film tell? 
Well, they basically rush as fast as they possibly can to get out of anything concrete. These characters all kind of live in San Francisco, and they work as fast as humanly possible to get out of San Francisco and into the quantum realm. This is where if they keep shrinking down and shrinking down and shrinking down and shrinking down until they're so small that they kind of go almost kind of through like the keyhole of the quantum universe into this other place, this other dimension. And then this area that they are in is kind of in the basement of that world. And you've got like a whole kind of cadre of kind of peculiar characters, a real rogues gallery of bizarre characters and creatures and stuff all in this kind of almost kind of like the star Wars prequels kind of universe of high tech aliens and all sorts of stuff. But it's also on a sub atomic level, tiny, 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 tiny stuff. But when they're down there, they can breathe and whatever else. So the story is how they get back into that world. And the daughter, this Cassie Lang has made this little, um, way of uh, like a Hubble telescope that points into this world and a way to like map it out like a little satellite system or something that goes in there. And Janet Van Dyne, who was stuck in there for 30 years, this is the part of the second of these, uh, these Ant-Man movies played by Michelle Pfeiffer. She says, we can't mess with this, but before she can stop everything from happening, they all get sucked into that, that alternate world of the quantum realm. That's why it's called quantum mania. And then it's all predicated on the fact that she wasn't truthful with them about what she was doing for those 30 years. By the end of the second of these Ant-Man films, you kind of have the impression that she just spent 30 years down there by herself. But what this film has in it is that she didn't spend 30 years by herself down there. There is this whole other world down there. She was a part of that. And there was this character that showed up, Kang the Conqueror. And Kang the Conqueror basically took over this quantum realm. And she was a resistance fighter and all this stuff was going on. But she didn't tell anybody about it. And had she told people about it, maybe none of this would even happen. So what this whole movie becomes is kind of a bottle episode in a way. It doesn't really get you anywhere. The whole point of the whole movie is to introduce the idea of Kang the Conqueror down in this quantum realm. But because Kang the Conqueror is part of this multiverse storyline that they've started to kind of roll out, and we've talked about the multiverse before, this idea of having multiple, I don't know, existences all happening simultaneously, and the Disney Plus TV show Loki had the character of Kang the Conqueror in it, played by Jonathan Majors, and he reprises the role of Kang the Conqueror here. But there's just millions of them in all of these different multiverse universes. And this is just one of them. And they have to deal with him down in this quantum realm and he wants to escape and they got to make sure that he doesn't escape. And all of this stuff is stuff that the character of Janet Van Dyne knew about Michelle Pfeiffer's character, but didn't tell anybody about until they're now all embroiled in it. That's the basic story. So it's, get sucked into this world and then try to get back out again. But also, I guess we have to stop this maniacal villain before we leave. That's the story. 
We're reviewing the movie Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania with Pastor Ted Geese. He says of the movie that it was flat, dramatically weakened with missed opportunities. What does he mean? Is dressing up to be there too. And we're gonna have a ball just like we always do. Saturday night at the moon is who cares what picture you see. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig further into St. Luke's Gospel with The Bent Woman, Mustard Seed and Leaven, Last First and First Last, Lament Over Jerusalem, and Healing of the Man with Dropsy. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. One of the most difficult decisions that a spouse has to make is the decision to put their beloved husband or wife into a long-term care facility as a result of mental illness. In the February issue of The Lutheran Witness, the Reverend Michael Casting tells the story of how he cared for his wife during her struggle with Alzheimer's and how he came to grips with this decision. To find out more, you can read his article in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth. Freedom, Vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. Called the German Te Deum, this hymn is a versification of one of Christendom's oldest and best-known hymns of praise to the Holy Trinity and to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. The German version was written by a Roman Catholic priest. The translator, he was a Presbyterian who became a Roman Catholic in 1845 after a brief flirtation with the Episcopal Church via the Oxford Movement. That's just a little bit of the backstory of Holy God, We Praise Thy Name, one of the hymns treated in our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2. Find this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order Eternal Anthems, Volume 2, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. We are reviewing the movie Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania. Pastor Ted Geese is our guest. Ted, you say about this film, and I'm quoting you, you say it's flat, dramatically weak, with missed opportunities. What do you mean? Yeah, so um, I sent you guys some notes, and my general thoughts is that it was kind of flat, 
kind of dramatically weak and yeah, missed opportunities. So flat, I would say it's not super exciting. Like you never feel like they could fail. It may be part of that is that it's a very CGI computer graphics kind of heavy film once they get down into the quantum realm. Dramatically weak, I think this gets to that whole family dynamic part of it is that it's a very rich, fertile area for having drama, but they kind of rush through everything at the beginning so fast that you don't really get to invest in the characters in such a way that would provide you an opportunity for you to really care about what's going on. Maybe some people have those feelings for these characters and they just didn't build enough into this. Peyton Reed, the director, he's the director that did all three of these Ant-Man films, by the way, and a film called Bring It On about cheerleaders, which is from 2000, which is really kind of a fun movie. But in this movie, I guess fun is fine, but you do need to have it be grounded enough and for you to care enough about the characters to make it dramatically strong. And that's kind of missing. And I think the idea of missed opportunities, there's a couple of ways that I think that there's some missed opportunities here. One of the things that happens in this film is that there's some antagonism between Cassie Lang, the daughter, and Scott Lang, the, the dad, because Scott Lang is kind of, the accusation against him is, is that, you know, like, yeah, sure, you saved the universe, but what are you doing now? Like, there's still problems out in the world, and you're not doing anything for that. You're just, you got a book you're selling, you're, you know, you're just kind of waltzing through life. You're not really doing anything with it. But on the other hand, the one who's making this accusation, Cassie Lang, the daughter, she's out there trying to battle homelessness and do all of these kind of like social justice warrior kind of getting out there. She's an activist and a scientist. This is the kind of accusation that she's hurtling at her father. And the deal is, is that when they all end up in this quantum, you know, universe or quantum verse or the quantum realm, they, they find that, yeah, everybody is being oppressed by this Kang the Conqueror and Scott Lang just wants to go home. He wants to find a way to get them all out of there and get home. And she's like, well, these people need our help. We need to do something about it. This is a part of the plot between these two characters. And the missed opportunity, I think, is this. They live in San Francisco. She's supposed to be trying to help homeless people in San Francisco. You know what they don't show us? They don't show us homeless people in San Francisco. All they show is her locked up for causing a disturbance, trying to help homeless people in San Francisco, and then them talking about it around a dining room table, and then them getting sucked into the quantum realm. The missed opportunity is to show the tent cities, show like all of the disaster that is homelessness in San Francisco. That's the missed opportunity. Because by doing that, you would make a link between the world that we know and this quantum realm, and it would probably help the drama of the whole thing and maybe make it about something instead of just burying it in some dialogue and not showing that because it's not pleasant and it's not fun and these are supposed to be fun movies. But then it still has this storyline in it. So I think this is where it's a missed opportunity that they could have actually showed how rough things are actually for homeless people in San Francisco or people who are hard to house or they, I think now they don't call people in that situation homeless people. 
they call them houseless or some other kind of phrase or whatever. But the idea that she's this activist, that's a missed opportunity. Another missed opportunity, I think, like I try to avoid as much as possible before going into movies because I want to kind of just experience it as as it unfolds. So I was kind of hoping that they would use this opportunity to bring in this group of characters called the Micronauts. Anybody who remembers comic books from the late 70s, early 80s, and they've had other iterations along the way, but they might remember the Micronauts. They're from this kind of um, microverse kind of a thing. And the whole idea of the microverse, this already shows up in Ant-Man from 2015. And it it's it's that's the deal with Ant-Man and the Wasp and Janet Van Dyne being down there. But in those cases, they didn't show any of the people living down in the microverse in this quantum realm. And I was hoping maybe because I'd seen the trailer and there's some kind of wild, crazy characters in there. I thought maybe they would bring in these characters of the Micronauts into it, but they don't because like some other properties that Marvel has, the Micronauts, has they have been uh, leased out. They've been licensed to other companies, so they don't actually have the rights to them at the moment, so they're not able to put them in. So if people remember, one of the biggest recent Marvel movies was not one made by Marvel directly. It's not like a Disney Marvel product. It was the last Spider-Man movie, which is actually made by Sony. So in the past, they've licensed out these different portions of their catalog and the Micronauts are part of that. So I just, as a kid that grew up in the late seventies, early eighties, and I remember that and even had some of the toys back then alongside my Star Wars toys, et cetera, et cetera. I was kind of hoping that stuff might be in this, but it's not in it. It was licensed to Hasbro and Paramount Pictures has has the rights to it. And even back in 2009, J.J. Abrams was kind of in negotiations to develop a, a movie version of the franchise. And uh, Hasbro with Paramount was trying to kind of incorporate them into like G.I. Joe and some other stuff. So it's it's kind of out of Marvel's hands. It would make a perfect fit here. And there are characters that are basically stand-ins for who would be the Micronauts if they had the rights to doing it. So I think that's another missed opportunity. If they had gotten their lawyers in the same room with the guys from Hasbro and sorted out a deal or something, maybe they could have had those characters in here and that could have been fun. I think those are the missed opportunities. So it could have been more dramatically engaging. And if they'd taken a hold of some of these missed opportunities, that would have been really great. And then that would have made it a pretty exciting movie or potentially more exciting than it actually turned out to be. What is this character, MODOK? <laughs> MODOK is one of the more bonkers Marvel characters. MODOK is uh, an acronym for Mental Organism Designed Only for Killing. And it's basically a giant head with little baby arms and legs that floats around and, you know, is kind of menacing and shoots people and kills things, right? In this film, what they've done is, and listen, I'm not a big, like, I, I don't know all of the lore and the background for the character of MODOK. I have, over the years, noticed and seen him in different comic books and things like that. And he is this head that floats around. 
But what they've done with this is that he's actually the character of Darren Cross, who was the this the the villain in the first um, Ant Man film from 2015 called Yellow Jacket, and at the end of that uh, film, that's the character like I was mentioning. The big fight happens in the young little Cassie Lang's bedroom, and in the end, he gets sucked into the quantum realm. So. What happened, though, is is that his head survived and the character of Kang takes the head and kind of gives him his little encasing and gives him the arms and legs and turns him into MODOK. There's a mask that goes over his face and then it's revealed that it's this Darren Cross guy from the first film. Listen, this is weird stuff. Like, it's all weird stuff, right? Like, The Incredible Hulk is weird. It's all, it's all weird stuff. That's, that's the point, maybe, of a bunch of these Marvel comic books now made into this series of films. But we're getting a little into the weeds, and we're getting into some of the weirder things that are kind of... They're not as much grounded in reality. So this floating head with little baby arms and legs could be interesting, it's all played for laughs. He's not exactly scary at any point, but he is also very, very goofy looking. And his all of the special effects with him, it's just really weird looking and not in like the good way. It's just very... There were these really terrible B-movies like Forever Ago that um, were just like titanic but it was like just thumbs with like a little face on the thumbs and they would do like parodies of other movies that character of modok when the mask comes off and you see the actor Corey stoll underneath as darren cross in the modok thing it just looks like one of these thumbs with the little face on it it's it's so weird looking for me it just didn't come across very well and then you know there's more to say about this character of modok I usually I ask like myself as I'm watching a movie like this is like, you know, is there anything that a Christian should be thinking about when they watch a movie like this? Or what, what should I be thinking as I watch this film? And there are lots of things that'll come up that might be a tip off or something that stands out as interesting. So here you've got like somebody who's set up as a villain who was a villain in the first film, who now is this villain in this film. And they do a, a thing where he actually helps in the end. Like he kind of turns on Kang the Conqueror and helps them defeat him. So the villain has a change of heart and he has a change of heart because he has a fight with Cassie Lang. And now this is another missed opportunity, by the way, Cassie Lang is a frightened little girl in her bedroom in the first movie now she, in this film, squares off against... This is the very guy that her dad fought in her room, her childhood room in that first film. And she's now squaring off against him. And they don't make the most of that. You know, she basically makes short work of him. But as he's been defeated by Cassie Lang, you know, she has this kind of weird conversation with him. It's a sort of a call to repentance in a way, and he's just kind of really a broken individual, actually. And she says to him, you know, like, you're terrible. 
And he says, yeah, I know I'm terrible, but what am I supposed to do? And she's like, well, just don't be terrible. I'm paraphrasing because it's kind of like crass language that gets used at that point in the film. So, yeah, then he, he rises to the occasion and he helps defeat the villain, you know, at a pivotal moment. So it made me think of this, this passage from Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So as a Christian, you do this, but then the way that it all kind of unfolds in the end is so weird. He basically dies as a result of all of this, but because we've got the multiverse, he, this character could come back a thousand times, but he dies. And as he's dying, he's like, I always respected you guys. And cause all of these main, all the main characters are gathered around him. And he's like, yeah, I always respected you guys. And I, I, now I can die as an Avenger. And they just blow it off. They just blow it off. They're like, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, you're an Avenger. But they, they're super insincere and don't mean it. And it's all played for laughs. And it's like, you've got a villain who becomes a hero, as it were, quote unquote. And then you just blow it off. It's like, well, what's the point of even being a hero then? And this is a problem through this whole entire film is that Scott Lang too, as a character, yeah, you saved the universe, but what have you done lately? Being a hero is not, not such a great thing. You couldn't possibly allow for this guy just to die as a redeemed character. That's not the arc that they have in which as a Christian, it's like, wow, that's a disappointing thing. So by way of summary, what are your pastoral concerns about this film? Well, I mean, I think that on the whole, because it's all played for laughs, it doesn't have a balance between drama and the laughs. Like I, uh, that's what I would like to see, but because it doesn't have that, it doesn't really provide a lot of opportunities to, to allow Paul Rudd as Scott Lang to be the hero of his own movie. So this is, I, I think a pastoral concern is, is that, this is a not a really great image of a family. You've got a a dad and a daughter and you've got another kind of family with a mother and a a dad and a daughter and because it's all played for laughs and it doesn't take anything very seriously and because everybody's not really very forthcoming with each other and because there's no resolution to this animosity between the daughter and the, the father in a kind of a meaningful way. It's not really very kind towards fatherhood. It's not really kind towards family. It's not giving you a really good family unit here or even a, you know, a good example of family at all. And it, I mean, it's kind of supposed to be, I guess, a family movie in a way. So I think that's a pastoral concern. If you're looking for a movie that would have that kind of stuff in it. This isn't it. And listen, I, I get it. Like that can be a source of drama, but then do something with it, which I didn't feel like they really pulled it together on the whole. This movie is kind of just fine. It's okay. It's like, it's not a great movie. It's not a terrible movie. It could be way better than it actually is. I think Disney Marvel's kind of lost its way at the moment. And in terms of just pastoral concerns, it's like, the first of these movies, like Ant-Man, I thought that it was a good father-daughter story in there. It was an interesting thing. It was about a guy trying to redeem himself 
in order to be a good father to his daughter. And it seems like they'd forgotten this by this point. That's not the through line for this. It's not part of this story. And I think I think it fails in that way. And it's it's just I would say if, if people are wondering, ah, should we go spend the seventy five bucks or a hundred bucks to take our whole family out to go watch this movie and buy popcorn and all the rest of it, maybe stay home and watch the first Ant Man. You're gonna get a better family movie out of that one than this one. Pastor Ted Geese has a bachelor's degree in fine arts. He is pastor of Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, and he teaches a course for Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary titled A Lutheran Approach to Art, Media, and Film. You'll find a link to Pastor Geese's movie reviews on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Ted, thanks. Thank you. We'll be going through listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line on the other side of the break. We'll talk about some listeners having difficulty with their downloading of our podcasts and what was the Holy Spirit doing all that time before Jesus' ascension into heaven and Pentecost. Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org slash deaconess. Working in faith, laboring in love, remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess. Please know that you are welcome at Ascension Lutheran Church in Niles. We believe that every word of Holy Scripture is true. Jesus died and rose again for your salvation. We pray for each other. It's a priority. We help each other in times of need. We help each other grow in faith. We encourage one another. We truly love one another. We have room for you and those you love. Ascension Lutheran Church. Niles, Illinois. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our school is committed to authentic Lutheranism, the entire Book of Concord, and indeed to authentic Lutheranism as it has continued to be confessed and practiced through the centuries right up into our own time. Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're committed then to biblical, confessional Christianity and Lutheranism and applying it 
to the world of today in as effective a way as we can. You can find out more about studying for the pastoral ministry at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at ctsfw.edu, ctsfw.edu, or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana.